Today's emerging adults face a monstrous enemy, drugs. Drugs are one of the primary hindrances of proper brain development and brain functionality in young people. And with the percentage of young people using and abusing drugs, it seems impossible to prevent them and even to help them overcome drug addiction. But is it really impossible? I invite you to stay tuned to today's episode as I talk about this very prevalent issue with my good friend, teacher and former probation officer, Diane Seuss, as she shares with us her expertise in this field and offers practical advice to young people to help them overcome drug addiction and go towards a better future. It is a mentality that shuns excuses and focuses on what's at stake. A mindset that resolves within itself that you must totally empty yourself to experience victory. A memory that remembers that who and what you are playing for is bigger than you. Welcome to the Fourth Quarter Christianity Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Webster, and I'm so thankful that you took the time to tune in to today's episode. I'm very excited about this particular episode as we have in to talk with us, former Chief Probation Officer Diane Suit, about the very prevalent issue of drug addiction in the young community. Uh, maybe you have struggled with drugs or in the past, or maybe you still struggle with drugs, or maybe you know someone who struggles with drug addiction. Uh, please share this episode with them. Don't forget to like this episode, subscribe uh, to uh, the podcast, and also leave a review, leave a rating, as this will help with the exposure of the podcast. Now we will get right into the conversation with Diane. Ms. Diane, I'm glad to have you on the show today. How are you? I'm good. Glad to be here. What I want to do as we uh, as we begin is uh, just give you a brief opportunity to just introduce yourself to the audience so they can get a chance to know you better. All right. Well, I'm Diane Suits, and I am a full-time instructor at Metro Community College here in Omaha. Um, I share that responsibility with another job there as the director of the criminal justice program. So I like to say that I'm the dean's helper, but that I probably do a little bit more than that. But I do... I have been teaching for 15 years, and but prior to my teaching criminal justice at Metro, I was the chief probation officer in Fremont. We I had a district of about probably I want to say six counties, and then I had 14 probation officers, and we had about I was probably around 5,000 people on probation. Probably a fourth of those were juveniles. Um, as you know, our topic is against all odds, um, and this is essentially a redemption story. I want to just briefly introduce Alton Voss. He's a young man whose addiction uh, to drugs really cost him everything, um, seemingly everything, everything that he lived for, everything that he believed in. In high school, uh, Alton was a, a phenomenal football player. He ranked in at number 26 in the state of or in the nation and like number three or four in the state of Florida. And he played the quarterback position. So he was a pretty, you know, phenomenal guy, a great athlete. He received all the accolades uh, that athletes normally receive. He eventually received a full scholarship, the University of South Florida. But he was redshirted, so he didn't get a chance to play right away. It did something to his ego. He lost a lot of confidence. He began to, uh, to really just hate football, you know, something that he lived for, something that he loved. So shortly after, 
He began to get into the party life. He got heavily involved with alcohol. He began to um, introduce, you know, pills into his life. One of the pills that he added was oxycodone. So he no longer has that football scholarship. He's quit football, something that he loved. His dream was to make it to the NFL. So that seems a little bit bleak now. I think you and I can agree, Miss Diane, when we uh, when I say that many young people are plagued with these, you know, sort of predatorial monsters that are kind of lurking in the grass, uh, such as, you know, uh, the mental health issues and the drug abuse and things like that. Being a former uh, probation officer, chief of probation, how much of this did you see and, and, and what role did it did you play in trying to help young people overcome drug addiction? I think a lot of people don't aren't, you know, they don't really know what responsibilities that a probation officer has. And when it comes to, you know, working in the probation office, what a lot of people don't know is probably, I would say, half of the, the people that we supervise have either an alcohol or drug problem and three fourths of the entire caseload, which, you know, in Fremont, which was kind of my primary area that I worked, you know, we had about 1200 people on probation. And, you know, if you take half of that, which would be about 600 people that are on probation for drugs and or alcohol, and, and you couple that with three fourths of everybody, um, either was under the influence of alcohol or drugs when they committed their offense, you know, we play a significant role in dealing with people who do have addictions and, you know, not everybody that comes through the probation office has an addiction, but, you know, a good share of them do. So it's our responsibility as, you know, as probation officers to do our very best to try to help these people, um, you know, get better. That could be through referring people to treatment, um, AA meetings, NA meetings. It could even be as much as kind of holding them accountable by having them come in and drug test, you know, every week or even doing home visits. And sometimes I even know our, our staff would go out and, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, we would do something called bar checks. And, you know, not, not that we were all that about, you know, trying to get people in trouble, but, you know, it's important when you have an addiction that people hold you accountable because it's pretty easy to slip back into that cycle of, of drug use. Right. So we, I mean, we talk about addiction and I know that um, there's a stigma obviously to addiction. Um, when we think about people that's addicted to something, like if I were to leave my house right now, walk down the street and I see some guy leaned over a trash can under a bridge and I look closely and I see he have a needle, you know, towards his arm. What am I going to think about that guy immediately? Like, oh, he's scum of the earth or something like that. Um, those negative thoughts that come to our minds about, you know, people that are addicted to something. I think what would help most people to really uh, get rid of that negative idea or that stigma that's attached to addiction is to understand what addiction is. What is addiction? Basically, if you want to think about addiction, it's a um, first off, it's a chronic disease. And I don't think we, we, um, a lot of times we think of it that way. We think, well, you know, it's a, you know, I my father-in-law used to always say, you know, you can't say alcohol and drug addiction is a disease because, you know, they, they caused it, you know, it wasn't like cancer or those kind of things. That's an old way of thinking. Um, most medical, if not all medical professionals see, see addiction as an actual chronic disease. And what makes it an addiction is, you know, cause we all, to be honest, we all have addictions. You know, I have a chocolate addiction, you know, that's going to send me to prison, but 
you know, uh, the former president of the United States had a, had an addiction to Diet Coke. He even had a red button put in on his his desk at the White House, and every time he rang it, it meant the butler was going to come in and you know bring him a Diet Coke. He got like twelve. You know, if you're drinking twelve Diet Cokes a day, you've got an, that's an addiction. Now those things aren't going to get you in trouble, but but an addiction is basically a chronic disease. And what makes the difference between like an addiction? It's going to be, it's where your whole mind is all you can think about is that drug you you're in a constant state of compulsive uncontrollable wanting of that drug you can't think about anything else but the drug and that generally is what we classify in this field as a bona fide addiction so when we think about addiction, I guess just to sum it up, it's, it's, it has some effect on the brain, if I'm not mistaken, some structural um, effects regarding how the brain functions. Um, how and why is it that drugs are so addicting? What makes drugs so addicting? You know, some drugs are more addicted than uh, addicting than others. You know, methamphetamine, cocaine, hydrocodone um, are going to be probably more addicting than others. You're going to have like marijuana and, you know, that's going to have a less uh, potential of being addicting. And I think what makes them addicting is your brain. So when you use drugs all the time, what it does is it causes your brain to always want it. You know, it's that endorphin that you have, um, that, you know, some of us get just naturally through like whatever it is that you enjoy, you know, it makes you happy. Uh, people who use drugs, that that's that piece of that brain that just keeps saying, you know, give me more drugs, give me more drugs. So it's just, um, and like I said, some drugs are much more addictive than others. I remember, um, and I'll just share this personal um, story regarding like how your brain just sort of tells you like, hey, you need more, you need more, even though you're trying to rid yourself of it. Um, at age six or 14, I got addicted to pornography. And I watched pornography for over 10 years, uh, nearly, nearly 10 years. I'm only 23. Uh, so like eight, seven years. And it's something that I still struggle with, struggle with in the sense that I think about it. I can see the the images that I've watched years ago and they come up in my mind again. And I'll tell my wife about it. Like, Hey, she looks at me and say, Hey, what's wrong? And I'm thinking like, you know, babe, I have this, you know, this image that has returned to my mind um, of a video that I watched, you know, and it's something it's like a consequence that I guess you can't get rid of because you've already indulged yourself in, in it. And most people think this is one of the primary reasons why you can't get over an addiction. So what do you think about that? Is it possible to overcome a drug addiction? Yes, it is possible to overcome an addiction. Just like you talked about, you know, when you talked about your por pornography addiction, First off, you're not alone in that. There are a lot of people that uh, have struggled with that particular addiction. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're awful or those kinds of things. It means that you have something that you have to, to work on. And the first thing with all addictions, no matter if it's drug addiction, pornography addictions, food addictions, uh, you know, vaping addiction, whatever your addiction is, the first thing you have to do in order to stop it or overcome it is you have to want to. And that's the hardest part for most people is to want to do that. 
But as you know, for most people, when you get to a point where you can no longer feel good about yourself and you're at, for lack of a better word, you've hit bottom, most people at that point want to, to make some changes. So the first way on how you get rid of a, an addiction is you have to want to. But wanting it is just isn't enough. You then have to take the steps to do things like, for instance, if it's a drug addiction, you have to then decide, look, I'm going to get some help. And that help could be as little as maybe support through your, your ministry, uh, just somebody who can, uh, you know, be there when you when you need the help as far as to stay away from the drug. Like if you start thinking about the drug, maybe there's somebody you can call that can kind of talk to you a little bit about it. I actually happen to like the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy approach where it requires the person uh, with the addiction to actually, I like to say, to get to the gut of the problem. Because when it comes to most of us, there's usually a problem that's hidden beneath layers of denial. So the first thing we have to do with our addictions is to get to the gut of what's what what has caused that. You know, for instance, my dad was an alcoholic, and I think a lot of the times that why he had so many problems is growing up, he was never wanted by his mom. And I think rather than deal with that, um, he had to get to the bottom of that and say, okay, it's really stemming from the fact that I don't feel like my mom ever loved me. And once you can put those things on the table and come to come to reality and and then start talking about it most people can can get better when it comes to their addiction but they a have to be honest and b they have to be willing to do the hard work of uncovering what's behind the addiction i think um another uh, a thing that people relate to overcoming or the difficulty that it had or that that it takes to overcome an addiction is uh, withdrawal uh, the severity of the symptoms of withdrawal. I remember uh, watching an episode of Dr. Phil and we were introduced to this uh, girl named Cassie. She was 28 years old. She said her addiction to drugs and alcohol was literally her life. From junior high to high school, she was a straight A student. You know, she played sports, both volleyball and basketball. She was an All-American. But eventually at age 17, you know, she began to uh, really want to find herself and she wanted to gain her independence from her, from her parents. And so as she progressed through high school, she began to hang out with the popular crowd, as she called them. And they were doing drugs like speed, crack, cocaine, um, ecstasy. And all of this while in high school, she began to partake in even so much so her and her dad began to use drugs together. And so at the point where she tried to stop, when she was ready to, as you stated, she hit rock bottom. She was ready to change her mind. Uh, then she said withdrawal happened and she nearly died. Uh, they couldn't find veins in her arms because she had stuck so many needles in her arms. And once she got you know, hospitalized, she said that she was so close to death. And so she felt it was impossible to overcome an addiction. What do you say to that? What do you say to people that feels that with, um, a, a withdrawal, those symptoms of withdrawals literally hinders them from overcoming an addiction? So that's common, particularly with drug abuse and particularly with methamphetamine, because here's the problem. When you use methamphetamine, it, it takes away, because remember, it's all part of it, it works into your brain. It, a lot of times it takes away those endorphins that 
make us happy. And the more you use drugs, the more it takes away from your own ability to be able to be happy um, and feel good. So even people who, so that's one reason why the withdrawal is so terrible with drug abuse, because like with an alcoholic, after 30 days of no drinking, the shaking and some of those kind of things, they go away and you start feeling better. But with drug abuse, particularly, you know, methamphetamine and those, you can wait 30 days and it doesn't go away. You still have the cravings. You still, you know, it's not disappearing. So, you know, a lot of people frown on this. There's different ways you can deal with withdrawal. First off, there are some, uh, uh, you know, legal drugs that you can take that can can help a little bit with that. And, you know, a lot of the alcoholic anonymous, you can't replace one drug with another. Well, we have to get real on this because what do we want these people to keep failing? So my thought is, okay, let's first see if one through maybe counseling, through activities, through uh, positive things like increasing your diet, better diet, you know, just some of those first. I think I think all of us have to make sure we talk to our people that we're supervising with the natural kinds of things to get better before we immediately jump to a prescription drug. So I think first off, I would tell my, I would probably say to my folks on probation, okay, let's do this. When you start feeling these withdrawal symptoms, let's replace it with a positive activity, like possibly walking or listening to music or something that you really, you know, that makes you feel good and make sure you're watching your diet, stay away from caffeine, some of those kind of things. I would be cautioning on that. If that doesn't work, then I think I would go to plan B and that would be to talk to the doctor about, you know, what can I do? to help me with some of these, these withdrawal symptoms. And I don't know that I personally think it's a, a wrong thing to do to, to have some medicine if you need it. So those would be the two things, you know, Dan, that I would be talking to my people about it for a natural things and be the, the prescription medicine from a doctor. Like you stated before, the, your primary goal is to help those individuals get better. And I think the biggest argument for medical professionals and even parents, they say that there is a difference between the addiction of a teenager and the early stages that they can experience that addiction that can really hinder uh, the way their their brain uh, develops as they become you know, adults. Is there a greater risk for young people who are faced with uh, drug addictions and things like that rather than adults who are faced with drug uh, drug addiction? looking at two different populations, adult addiction and the juvenile addiction. And yes, I personally, I think it's for young people. And the, re, and the both, first, let's be clear, addiction is bad for all people. But when it comes to juveniles, the part of their brain is not yet developed. They're still maturing. They're still trying to, to grow up, so to speak. So when it comes to young people, you know, I think about, you know, their story is just beginning. They're still trying to figure out their world. And if they start using drugs early, will it be the drug that writes their story or will it be something else? And what we don't want young people to do is to get addicted to drugs because first off, research shows the development of the brain may not fully develop like it should. And secondly, there's a long-term chance of these young kids having even more serious health risks. 
Also, when young kids are using drugs, they are more likely to engage in activities like legal trouble, you know, wrongful sexual activities. And, you know, during your adolescent years, that's when you're starting to to form your, your life, your relationships with people, your social skills, those kinds of things, the important events. And if you're using drugs, you're going to miss out on it. You're going to miss out on your prom. You're going to miss out on homecoming because all you're going to be thinking about is that drug. And the more kids use the drug, as we know, Dan, the more they crave the drug. And the more they use the drug, the more damage that that's going to possibly do lifelong for them. And it could quite possibly affect their career choices, their jobs, and their ability to have a, a decent, happy adult life, which all I think all people, all adolescents are entitled to. So I think it's worse when it comes to kids because they're just getting started. Their story is just beginning and you don't want to, you don't want to, to ruin the story with addiction. And over and preparing for this episode, I, I visited um, the University of, of Pittsburgh, their study on addiction. And I forget the doctor's name who actually leads that apart, uh, that department, but she she sort of gave this illustration of the uh, the the mind of an adolescent. Uh, she said the uh, if you were to view the adolescent's mind or brain as a as a functioning car, it would look something like this. So the amygdala, which, you know, processes the feelings and uh, of reward and pain, and that matures sort of early. So that would be a full functioning gas pedal sort of look at teenagers and young adults and say, OK, you know, yeah, for sure. They're definitely um, have their foot on the gas, so to speak, uh, so that they, they go after their gut reactions. And, you know, young people sort of uh, experience this this type of euphorium high uh, where which is associated with, you know, taking more risk and, you know, using uh, substances um, as it relates to drugs and things like that. But as the amygdala and all of this is functioning well and they're sort of, you know, have their foot on the gas, they have weak breaks. Okay, and the weak breaks would be classified as like the prefrontal, uh, prefrontal co uh, cortex, which assess the situations, uh, make decisions. You, I mean, you use this part of your brain to make critical decisions. And I know you talk a lot in class about being a critical thinker. When they make these decisions to go out and to indulge in drugs such as speed and cocaine and things like that, well, which are really addictive drugs, um, the moment they try to stop, I mean, it's, it's difficult because now you can't your brakes are too weak. You can't slow down. You can't properly come to a halt and expect it all to end in one night. And so what's the end result of that? I think you alluded to it. Um, some, you know, young people, they end, end up with a life of crime, um, doing criminal activity. Um, they begin to uh, feel a lot of pain. And their story, as you stated, is just beginning. And now it's being uh, rewritten, so to speak, by addiction. And so another, another area that I want to kind of get into is, is relapse. Most people also allude to relapse as being um, a point in life where, hey, listen, I actually can't overcome this addiction. I failed. So how, how should we look at, you know, relapse? Should we look at it as a normal part of the journey? Uh, it's, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Or how, how should we view that? People have to remember that addiction is a chronic disease. And with chronic diseases, it's likely that no matter just take cancer for an example, you know, you can, you can go into remission with cancer and it pops back again. So 
the same way goes with addiction. So it is something that people are going to battle for their entire life. Uh, it's not going to go away. We want it to go away. People want to just pretend it never happened. That attitude will get them even more into lots of relapse. So you have to, I think when it comes to, at least for us in the probation field, we used to say, expect relapse, not to them, but to our own selves. So we wouldn't be so quick when they would use again to want to just revoke probation and send them to jail. That's a wrong, that's what we did in the 1980s and to some degree in the 1990s. But when 2000 came around and I took over the district in 2003, um, the, the, the tide was shifting and it was shifting more toward, you know, look, it, we can't be so quick to throw everybody in jail for an addiction. So we started then to, you know, look at other avenues like, okay, expect relapse. So what you do on that, when you say that it's a normal part of the journey to sobriety, you have to just expect that. Now, that doesn't mean we have to accept that. You expect that, but not accept it. So what you do with folks who relapse, you say to them, look, you're, you're not a failure. You're a success because you had one week, two weeks, three weeks of sobriety. So now let's start again. Let's begin today on another journey called success, called sobriety. And then what you do then with the folks who relapse is you then you tighten up on some of the programming. You might put them back in an A meeting every night. You might hook them up with the sponsor, you know, somebody who also has had um, addiction, who, who's been in, you know, who's been in a, you know, sobriety for, you know, five, 10 years. You, you give them a friend. You might refer them to a, a minister, you know, somebody. And then you involve their family and you say, okay, we need some, we need some reinforcement here. You, you guys, they're struggling. And you, you counsel your person to, to say, look, when you're starting to feel like you might want to use drugs, reach out to your mom or your husband or your, your dad, you know, so you start and then you try to keep them away from triggers. Like for instance, for a kid, if a trigger is, you know, hanging out with a certain kid, then stay away from that kid. So those are kind of the things that we have to be very, very careful when it comes to relapse to not just holler at somebody and say, you know, God, I can't believe you did that. You know, you're terrible. And you continually offer positive reinforcement and support to addicts because it's a chronic disease and they're trying. Again, you also have to have though, you know, when we talk about this, Dan, they have to want to try too. I mean, if, if they don't want to try, then, you know, then you have to then look at something different. So we're going to look at the bright side and think these folks are wanting to get better. Right, right. And I think you alluded to something very important. You know, um, I know that this is a podcast primarily tailored towards, you know, younger people, but they have parents. Um, it, it's ba it basically takes a cooperative effort. So you have to have an, an ally, so to speak, someone that you can rely on. that's not going to cause you to relapse. And if you do relapse, someone who's going to encourage you that, hey, listen, it happened. Let's move forward. Um, again, I told you about my um, addiction to uh, pornography. I actually still um, I, I still am subscribed to um, an app called Covenant Eyes. And what Covenant Eyes do, they monitor everything. But when you look at it from a parent's perspective, sometimes parents have a 
more difficult time trying to uh, encourage their children. They almost kind of blur the lines between encouragement and enabling them. What practical advice could you give as far as uh, to help family members or parents help their struggling teenager overcome an addiction? Well, first off, I think as hard as it is, you know, as a parent of three of my own children who have all, you know, they are all adults now, I've experienced, you know, some of my own kinds of issues. I've not had to deal with, you know, um, addiction as far as, you know, drugs go with my kids, but I certainly have seen it with the families that I work with in probation. And I think what we have to remember as parents, if you have kids that have addiction is you have to be extremely supportive. And that's hard because you're so worried. It's hard to be supportive when you're worried sick, but you have to continue to always be positive and supportive. It depends upon when it comes to your child, it depends upon the level of their issue. For instance, if you're concerned about, you know, the fact that they are experimenting with marijuana or even, you know, some other drug, ecstasy, whatever it might be. And if it's an, in, they're in an experimental stage, then what you as a parent do is be a parent and start then imposing rules, you know, curfews, you, you have the right to do that. Um, curfews, monitoring their friends, monitoring their phone usage. Um, and you just have to remind your kid that I'm not doing this to be mean. I, I, I care about you and I want you to have a wonderful life. And I'm doing my job. Um, I'm worried. And I don't think it hurts your kids to hear their parents say, I'm worried. I'm scared. And I want you to have a, a, a good life. I think if the addiction is more serious, where they're not going to school and they're not um, getting out of bed, then I think you're going to have to get help. I think at that point, you need to, you know, find a, a therapist, a alcohol drug counselor, depending on what the addiction is. And I think you're going to have to elicit support with some professional who's trained to deal with those kinds of issues. So I just think when I talk to parents, I think you have to first evaluate the problem. And if it is a problem as far as experimenting, I think you can lay some rules down. But I also think parents have to realize that our kids are watching us. And so that means we as parents have to demonstrate responsible, good behavior. It's pretty hard on a kid to tell them that they can't be doing, you know, using marijuana when perhaps you and your husband are sitting in the living room smoking marijuana when they go to bed at night. So I think the best thing we can do as parents is to be good role models. I mean, really good role models. They hear, they see us, our actions more than they hear us. So I think one thing for parents is to make sure that, you know, you're modeling good behavior. And if you are, then I think, as I used to tell most parents, look, you're good parents, you've got a good house here, you've got good structure, He's going, he or she's going to be okay if you take the precautions you need. I think that's absolutely right. You know, uh, that credibility piece is, is very important. Uh, being a young father, I catch myself watching my uh, watching my actions and what I say more closely, even though my son is only six months. I just don't want to, you know, be that that hindrance for uh, uh, from him doing something remarkable with his life in, in a positive way, you know. And so I think when we talk about young people, and I know you alluded to earlier about young people actually, you know, wanting the help. In some cases, they don't want the help. In my mind, I would think that would be the easiest thing. And so what what do you think as far as like 
the signs that we can look for, the specific signs that we can look for in young people, especially considering that they may not want to talk about it? Are there some signs that we can look for to uh, to help them? Yeah, I think some of those things would be, um, are they isolating themselves? First off, are they, um, do they show a lack of motivation? Um, are they having anger outbursts or they're not acting like themselves? A lot of times when you're concerned that maybe your child is using drugs, you, they might have um, some, you know, like I said before, emotional or mental withdrawings. Um, a lot of times our kids when they're doing things that they're not supposed to do, they isolate, they won't talk to you. Uh, one, out of shame, um, particularly if you're a family that they know doesn't approve of the behavior. So some things that you can look for are, I think, like I said, anxiousness, inattentiveness, uh, lack of motivation, mood swings. Um, those kind of things are things I think parents need to watch for. The most important thing that I used to see in the field is watch for them. Many of our parents that, not many, but some um, weren't all that involved with their kids, weren't interested in their well-being. That's a problem. And it's usually um, something that contributes to a lot of the kids having drug problems. Uh, most people, I think you just alluded to a great point as far as parents being involved with their children. Um, one thing that I guess used to um, sort of enable me with my uh, pornography addiction was the fact that my mom worked overnights. And so I was often left alone, uh, left alone at home. And so I could pretty much, you know, I had the freedom to do whatever I want. We had no restrictions or codes on our phones or any of our devices. So it was just that easy to, you know, sort of access uh, those sites that would, you know, obviously be of some great hindrance later down the line in life. And so I think um, that's a great, great point. Just being able to uh, know where your kids are, um, obviously be involved, talk with them about it. I believe that's a that's a very important thing to do. Um, but also when we allude to children, uh, kids, young people in general and their drug addiction, would you say that drug addiction is a mental health issue? If so, or if not, would you say that drug addiction um, can lead to a mental health issue? No, addiction is not a mental health issue. Um, it's not. They're two totally separate issues. A lot of folks who have mental illness will use drugs as a way to numb some of their effects of the mental illness. But um, they're two separate issues and two separate problems. You will find Folks who have mental illness also have drug problems. And usually the drug addiction is due to, you know, not being able to deal with the symptoms of their mental illness. So they smoke marijuana or they get involved with prescription drugs to help numb the pain, so to speak. So I think they're totally different issues as far as those kind of things. So. Absolutely. So um, if I'm understanding it correctly, then most of the times the drugs that are taken are used as a way to sort of numb the mind or numb the uh, the pain that they have from the mental health issue. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. OK, OK. Um, so, again, I think I shared with you before about, you know, my mom and the things that she struggled with as far as her uh, mental health. Um, she's much better now, thankfully. Um, but she 
they're they're right. <laughs> There's still a lot of things that uh, she doesn't like, you know, about medication and stuff like that. Like she doesn't like to feel numb. Um, but I think some of the uh, some of the young people that I've talked to um, who were addicted to drugs or any other uh, substance that uh, they always stated to me that it was a way for them to release themselves from the pain, from the agony of life, from the hurt of maybe a divorce, from the pain of maybe abuse that they were receiving at home. I think you alluded to it earlier. The way the family environment that you have plays a large role, especially in the lives of young people and how they will ultimately uh, react to that. And so have you ever dealt with families who uh, definitely had children that were addicted to drugs because of their environment at home? Probably most of the families that I worked with that had drug addictions and um, I don't want to say mental health issues because I don't think that's the same, but I definitely believe that um, uh, drug usage, uh, addictions, those kind of things. One thing that you see quite a bit is you see family involvement in drugs. So you, you'll see some genetic genetics that play into uh, drug addiction. But I also think that for a lot of families that I dealt with, a lot of times the kids that had these addictive behaviors, families, a lot of times the, the parents were to blame. They weren't home. They didn't supervise. Uh, they weren't present. And I think I used to say with parents, you know, if you don't care for them, they won't grow up right. It's kind of like a, a flower, you know, if you don't water them and care for them, they never get pretty. You have to keep nurture. And I think parents, a lot of times that come, have kids through the court system, they don't always do the job that they need to do as far as the nurturing and the support and those kind of things. But yet on the other side of it, you know, a lot of parents that we would deal with, it's not that they didn't want to try it's that they never had any good role modeling themselves. So just because we might have problems with parenting doesn't mean that parents can't get better. And that's part of a job of a probation officer is to try to help parents do more structured things with their kids so that they can grow up to have good lives too. So I, I think a lot of how parents are is a lot of what they saw when they were growing up. So it's, it's this genetic factor that gets in the way. That plays a major role. I've heard it before from parents and you know, young people alike. So um, again, obviously our conversation is uh, <clears throat> on this issue is very prevalent. Again, it's against all odds. So we're trying, it's essentially a redemption story, uh, trying to motivate, you know, young people who obviously have struggled with that, or maybe um, people that are listening still struggle with some type of addiction. It may not be drugs. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's a, maybe it's an addiction to a video game or whatever, but it's the point that you can overcome. It. And I think uh, your remarks towards that were, uh, were very great and obviously useful. So as we come to, a, come to an end of this, uh, of this episode, I want to finish off with, uh, with Alton's story. Um, what I left off when, he was uh, three years into the drugs and it had begun to alter his state of mind and everything just seemed, you know, sort of bleak from him. He lost his scholarship. He was no longer playing football and now he returned home. Okay. And so we pick up there. He, he, he had returned home. And after a few years of, of using those drugs, his mind was beginning to be um, seriously affected by that. He stole a car when he went back to Michigan 
and ended up in a graveyard. How? Don't know. But he ended up in a graveyard. He looked around. And for that brief moment in his life, for a long time, he was sober almost instantly. And he looked around the graveyard and thought to himself, like, hey, if I don't change, I'm going to end up um, like one of these individuals that I'm viewing right now. I'm going to end up six feet under if I don't change my life. He fell on the ground, head bowed, and immediately began to cry out to God, asking God to help him to relieve him of the stress of the pain um, that those drugs had you know, caused him. He got up, left the graveyard, and the guy was immediately arrested. Okay, He was taken to jail, and he met a woman named Jane Patterson. And Miss Diane, I'm just going to tell you right up front, I think to me, you remind me a lot of Miss Jane Patterson, which is why I thought you would, you were perfect, you know, for this podcast. Um, and Miss Jane, she was a woman who ascribed to Christianity. She was his, uh, his uh, public defender and she was assigned to his case. And when she met this guy, she started crying. She looked at him and she said, I just I knew behind that manly, that huge body of his, that there was a little boy inside saying, help me. And she got the charges brought down to a misdemeanor. Unfortunately, though, about two months later, he relapsed. And we talked about we talked about that. You know, most people, they would view relapse as a failed mission. I can't do this. Uh, but Miss Jane talked to her husband and they decided to give um, Alton some money to go to a rehab treatment center in Argentina. And while he was there, he realized that he was more than football. He realized that he was more than weightlifting. He was more than an athlete. He was a human being who had messed up and now can have another chance if he decides, as you stated before, if he decides that he doesn't want to live that lifestyle anymore. When he returned home, he got a chance to play football again. And it was remarkable because for the first time in his life, he wasn't playing football because he lived for football. He was playing football for a hobby. He's still sober today, living um, drug free. And it's because of Miss Jane Patterson and other people who helped him and obviously him making up his mind and God having an influence in his life that he's able to be drug free. I think that's a remarkable story um, uh, of a guy who faced the odds and got a chance to play football again. And Miss Jane Patterson, who reminds me again so much of you, I think that you will go out your way to to help people. Um, you've told us stories about you going out your way to help people. And even now, just doing this podcast, I know that you would do whatever you can uh, for your students. And so uh, that's my special, th uh, you know, thank you to you. Thank you for being on the show, uh, for taking time to share some practical knowledge and advice, not only for me, but for those listening. And um, is, is there any anything that you want to say before we before we head out? No, just thank you for the opportunity to, to talk with you um, about this super important, you know, topic about drug addiction. So, no, I, I think I would end with, you know, everybody should have a chance to have a wonderful life. Well, Ms. Diane, I appreciate you so much for uh, setting aside this time in your evening to uh, be on the podcast with me. And I'm, I know for sure that this episode will add value to lives of many. So thank you again, Ms. Diane. Thank you for having me. As we conclude today's episode, give ear to the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 reads, No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. And God is faithful, so he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide 
the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. See, the message that Paul was trying to convey to the Corinthians was that whenever we begin to think that no one else is or has experienced what we are experiencing at the time, we begin to think incorrectly. We begin to think that we are alone. But in actuality, in reality, we're not alone. For those who may be addicted to drugs, please understand that you are never alone. There, there is someone out there who has went through the same trials, who have went through and experienced the same pain that you have experienced. Please reach out for help. Thank you so much for tuning in today's episode. Please, again, leave a review, leave a rating as this will help with the exposure of the podcast. And be sure to share this episode with your friends.